our leading man okay. leading the podcast. Here he goes. The left jest. Welcome. I'm Raga Mehta, and I'm here with my co-host. Anders Lee here. And, and he cannot contain his excitement. Hey everyone, I'm Alex Patak. Thanks for coming. Hi, thanks for listening in. <laughs> Are we, do we want to rename the left jest should, instead of the left jest should we add a the that'll be after we're sued by the band left jazz oh great band and uh <laughs> we're here today with a special guest uh natalie shore hey natalie hello uh thanks for joining us uh natalie is a story producer for adam ruins everything on true tv she's written for the atlantic uh slate and she just had a piece in jacobin magazine called down with the copay Thanks for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. How are you? How is LA? Ah, oh, it's good. Still pretty bright and sunny uh, in October. So we'll see how long that lasts. Is uh, is the city in like spiritual shambles over this Weinstein thing? What's it like over there in Gossip Town? Uh, it's definitely a very gossipy city, which I tweeted about, uh, which makes it very hard for me to believe that too many people who work with him or work in film haven't heard of this. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's definitely, it's definitely a topic of conversation. Uh, I work in TV, which is, you know, structured a little differently. And there is, uh, you know, a, a degree of separation between film and TV, but it's definitely something that, uh, you know, whenever something like this happens, people want to hash it out. So yeah, there's been some of that. It's funny because even I had heard of it. And then, like, Jennifer Lawrence and Hillary Clinton are coming out saying they did it. Well, I don't know right. if Hillary did, but yeah. So Hillary's, like, a major figure nationally, and Raghav's only a major figure on the other side of the country. Yes. <laughs> so it's getting all the way over there. Anders knew about it. Um, I, I learned of it uh, a little bit, but I did think his name was David Weinstein. <laughs> and also, this is the first thing I've ever heard about him, so um, not a fan. To be honest, I don't remember if I heard about it or not. Um, I'm someone who, <laughs> despite working in TV, I'm really not that up on pop culture, and I'm so not a movie person. And I've heard stories about so many famous industry people that I don't even know the difference. You know what I mean? Like, if I had heard uh, Harvey Weinstein is a sexual predator, I'm sure I have heard it, uh, but didn't even, you know, process it as notable. Uh, or remember about it specifically, just because it all blurs together for me. Well, one of the weird thing about it is I, there was this movie overnight that came out a few years ago. It was a documentary about the guy who made Boondock Saints, and he basically mm -hmm. got uh, blacklisted by Harvey Weinstein um, for being an asshole, like for making was, Boondocks. Yes, it was for it was being like, true to his Irish roots, <laughs> the one taboo left in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. He was, yeah, he was, I mean, justifiably so, and Irish plays a role in that, too. He was justifiably blacklisted by Weinstein, and the documentary was kind of about how much power this one guy has in Hollywood. Uh, and it like, goes to show there's probably so many heinous things that like we don't know about that uh, are going on there, too. Yeah, bad movies that are being yeah. made, probably. <laughs> Worse than yeah. that. Doc Saints 3. <laughs> But that is kind of an, an issue, too, like we were discussing about uh, just power and economic power that these people have in Hollywood. Um, is that uh, part of the conversation that people are leaving out is that this guy is a boss and he has the ability to harass people because of his economic uh, position? 
Yeah, you know, I feel like, um, I mean, there is some degree of that in the discussion. And I feel like, you know, what's definitely not lost on people is that, uh, you know, these predators are able to exploit the fact that this is uh, a highly competitive industry that a ton of people want to break into. And there are a lot of people who really, really want their opportunity. You don't know what your opportunity is going to look like. Uh, and so, you know, that's definitely something that uh, bosses, people who, you know, command a position like Weinstein does, uh, or, you know, I feel like a lot of the Cosby stories were like this too, people thinking that this was, um, you know, a career opportunity, something that they could do. Um, I feel like that even happens in comedy, that you know, a lot of the stories that you hear about uh, predators in comedy tend to be established comics who dangle some professional carrot in front of someone who's less established. So there's like a definite labor component to that story. Um, I don't think that people are talking about the economics as, you know, strictly economic as much as they should. And like, it's hard, you know, if you try to sit here and think about how the Weinstein story might have played out were it not for the fact that he not only commands a professional position that he does, but has so much goddamn capital, like how different it would be without that component. Um, you know, you do start to realize how important that is. Yeah. And someone made a good point earlier today. Uh, I think it was Megan Keister who said, you know, the people, the reason these stories are coming out about Harvey Weinstein isn't because there was some, you know, moral outrage that came to to a uh, head, it's because that his influence and power is waning. You know, he's an old guy. People don't need him so much anymore, and they can afford to kind of out of him at this point, uh, which is like the the underlying tragedy of the whole story. Yeah, I also think that you know, at some point, like it's uh, it's difficult to you know to to decide to come out with this. You need a lot of economic power yourself. You need, you know, enough people with vetted stories. You need, um, you know, money to be able to pursue a lawsuit. You need to be able to uh, fortify yourself from that point of view. So, you know, I mean, not too many publications could have done something like this. Uh, and I have no doubt that you know, especially in a post-Gawker era, I'm sure that this was something that they really took a lot of time on to decide whether they want to do. And when they did, you know, better believe that they've got lawyers going through the whole thing beforehand to make sure that they can, like, combat, uh, you know, whatever countersuit comes back. In a post-Gawker world, <laughs> what does it take to get all the fields? <laughs> I can't imagine any kind of corruption manifesting that way in the field of comedy. The one industry where you hear pay your dues more than anything else. <laughs> in the sinister, and, usually by the creepiest old man left living. And the one industry where you hear pay your dues eight years into comedy. Don't <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. no, look at me. I just lost keep, 30 years to this. <laughs> just keep your head down and you'll get what you want. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think, I think part of that is that, uh, you know, the creative industries, um, being a professional artist is, uh, a field in which, you know, like there aren't, I mean, there are people who are aspiring some things in terms of, you know, they're planning to go through that training, but 
you know, the, the idea of like being an aspiring ex for years where you're just like, you know, doing that thing, hoping to get discovered or hoping to, you know, meet the right person, sell the right thing that like that specific dynamic doesn't exist in most industries. And so, you know, the line between amateur and professional is blurry uh, in the creative fields. Like, I think we all understand that. And so I think a lot of the times, you know, the pay your dues idea is, um, you know, the, the idea that you have to push through the amateur phase if you want to be treated like a professional, but certainly that, <laughs> that admonishment is so abused, uh, and generally used as a way to like dismiss, uh, legitimate labor complaints. So yeah, you know. one of the most annoying things, uh, starting comedy is like this, uh, demarcation between, uh, open micer and professional comedian, which really is, uh, just complete bullshit. It doesn't, it's lot. not a real line. Like, no, I remember. I will always be an open mind. <laughs> Andrew's the name of my Netflix special. <laughs> Podcasting from a uh, live music open mic right now, uh, six hours in. Uh, but no, I remember, like, my first year in hosting a mic, and then people who were just on TV the night before being like, um, you have to let me go now, but also I'm in this line with 40 people, and me just not understanding what was happening at all. Yeah, and my mom helped me pay my rent. But yeah. Right, right, right. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Natalie, you used to live in New York. You were doing stand-up comedy out here for a while, and uh, it seems like your role at Adam Ruins Everything was uh, somewhat incidental. You went on as a uh, researcher? Yeah, so I, I did do stand-up for a couple of years. Um, I don't anymore. Um yeah, you know, I mean, I think that that's, like, it's it's really difficult to uh, sustain that. For, I mean, as you know, you, you know, put in late nights, you drink a lot of booze, uh, it's really strenuous. Um, and I, you know, kind of just felt like I had uh, gotten gotten out of it what I wanted to and, you know, was kind of transitioning out. And it's just, uh, it's nice to wake up early, you know? <laughs> like, I was kind of uh, excited to go to sleep at... 11 p.m. and wake up at 6, and that's the perverse thing I like now in L.A., <laughs> like all the other shitbags. May this be a cautionary tale where you quit stand-up comedy and became a success almost immediately, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I'm a success, but uh, I do have kind of a an odd meandering background. I did stand-up while I was doing a master's degree uh, back in New York, and then I uh, was a freelance writer out there. Uh, while also nannying and doing stand-up, and so... So those are good preparations for the working world. Yeah, so I knew I knew one of the writers, and they were looking for a researcher, and then I got promoted, so it went from there. But uh, yeah, it's been almost two years that I've been out here. That's so cool. Do you... Um, so you're working on a TV show, and obviously it's a wildly different situation than working with movie execs, but do you ever feel like there are shadowy figures in the background of your day-to-day, -day, or like even just in the industry at all, that, um... Um, you always hear rumors about people, and I've known so many people who have stories about other people. I think that my position is slightly different. I mean, knock on wood, I've, uh, encountered, um, very little of that on, uh, a personal basis, but I think it's a few things. One, um, you know, I, I came out here with a job, uh, so I didn't have to go through that, you know, really um, precarious, desperate to break in, trying to make whatever connections I can. I think that that specifically is 
uh, a dynamic that abusers take advantage of. And that's not, you know, luckily that's not something that I did. I moved here uh, with a job. I also moved here when I was almost 30, um, which I also think, you know, I mean, not that, you know, obviously you can prey on people of any age, but uh, I do think that abusers are looking for, um, you know, people that they know that there's a serious power disparity and that people are more likely to go along with what they want to acquiesce to things. And, you know, that tends to coincide with a specific uh, life position. And so, you know, I came I came to L.A. a little a little later and in, in a little different circumstance but you know not the opposite logic where you think the 18 19 year old dancers would be harder to abuse because they get away so fast well yeah i mean i i, I certainly can't get away too fast uh, and no one would want to <laughs> see me dance so i don't know if that's going to play into my hand or outside she'll have to fight <laughs> uh, well it seems I, i'm looking uh on on twitter it looks like you got into um a discussion with uh, Josh Barrow, who of course is yeah. the show, the founder of Sparrows of That's right. He's not been on the show, but we we go out for drinks uh, occasionally, um, and it seems like well, I don't know why <laughs> this is so hard for people to wrap their heads around. Is like you know entertainment, kind of generalizing, but it's a more laid back environment than like uh, the business world. A lot of other parts of the business world, like people wear T-shirts, they drink together. But it seems like it's still really hard for people to wrap their heads around the fact that that doesn't mean that you can just harass people or that there's more ambiguity in that uh, type of interaction. Yeah, I mean, trust me, like I, I mean, you know, between comedy and working in TV, uh, I've I've had plenty of drinks with male colleagues, and uh, it's it's really not that amb ambiguous, you know, like. Uh, the stuff that you read about with Harvey Weinstein is not what my happy hours look like. And I think that, you know, there's something to be said when you are working with people that you're, you know, producing creative work with. Um, I mean, think of how many, like, stand-up and sketch ideas come out of just, like, silly chats with friends. Um, or, you know, in a writer's room, you brainstorm, you have goofy... You know, I, I don't think that those are as incidental to workplace culture as he was alleging. Like, I think that building a group dynamic is really important to the work that you end up making. Right. And trusting people to not do shady stuff to you, you know, if you're going to work with somebody. Yeah. Right. Well, that's why it, uh, his case reminds me of the kind of power abuse um, issue. How do, how do I say this? Harvey Weinstein's case of abuse reminds me of stories you hear from other institutional abuses where it's a power disparity problem. Like in Japan, uh, there's this whole issue where um, it's part of the culture where bosses kind of encourage you to go out for drinks like every night. And so they work these long uh, weeks and end up partying with the bosses all weekend. And there's just like rampant abuse around the office because there's just someone you can't touch who dictates everything you do. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. why I'm all about drinks with coworkers, not with bosses. I never hang out with a boss. Always a bad mood. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that it, it depends. It's a case-by-case -case basis. Um, you know, I do think that one, like, I think that the creative fields are, if not, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that they have more harassment than other fields but I do think that there are some differences one I think that who's the boss and who's not is not necessarily as 
strict, if not, I mean, it's delineated, but it's, it's different um, than it might feel at other jobs. Uh, that said, I mean, I'm sure that Weinstein feels like a boss, but they also have, I think, more leverage in that, like I said, people who know that a field is really highly competitive and that, you know, in some cases there aren't predictors for who makes it and who doesn't besides, you know, meeting the right person and it being lucky. I do think that that gives someone like Weinstein more uh, psychic power than they might in another field, you know, like as much as an intern with uh, a higher up is a disparity in any situation. I think that uh, there's, you know, maybe in other industries, there would be more incentive to walk away when you're not constantly told, like, it's not what, you know, it's it's who you know, you know, only, only a few people out of thousands and thousands have a big break, blah, blah, blah. Like, I think that those myths uh, are internalized and make people uh, more beholden to higher ups than they maybe would be in other industries. Uh, especially in stand-up when all about uh, where it's highly competitive, it's all about getting stage time, and you're surrounded by people who are very famous and influential. And I think people really buy into those myths very early on because it gets ingrained in you. Like Alex, you were just saying, it's like, pay your dues. Well, nobody wants to be paying their dues for it. Pay your dues. It's a long list and no one can actually see. <laughs> where you're you supposed will, to check the whole thing off. And you will never know where you are on the list. You um, want to know who your boss is? There's a great show about that. You can watch. <laughs> Fuck you. And it's not only like, you know, making sure that um, you pay your dues. It, it's kind of like, I mean, in some of these things, you know, with stand-up, like the person that gets on TV, the person that gets gets booked, the person that gets to open for a big comic, all of those things are, you know, there's not a defined set of criteria. Sometimes it's just like, who's cool, who's fun, who shows up, who can you vouch for? And like figuring out how to position yourself so that you're someone that people like, you know, I think especially if you are young, looking to break in, like, it's, you know, I mean, it's like, you don't want to be the shrew who stands up and says like, no, you know, I mean, you want to be like the cool girl who can hang like, yes. you know, I mean, I think that that stuff happens really slowly. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a structure that really lends itself well to this gradual boundary. Sad pushing. behavior really uh, reminds me of my favorite phenomenon in stand up comedy, which is the older comic just getting back into it. Who's showing he's still cool. <laughs> I'm on Instagram, dude. I've seen what you're doing over there. I love your pies and thighs. Are people still watching uh, Dane Cook? You know, just casual conversations <laughs> yeah. around the water. It's cooler. more like Red Fox or something like that. Oh. I, I fucking love that. Just like it'll be like four t early 20-somethings talking about just nothing and that one 45-year-old man being like, what do you guys like? <laughs> I go up to the older comedians and try to drop like Garrison Keillor references. I have seen Andrews do this. This is a true thing. Oh no, a true Minnesotan. You're uh, like, instead of social climbing, you're like age climbing to become the oldest man ever living. <laughs> Andrews is the world's youngest grandpa. <laughs> well, a well-written article that uh, you do have uh, is, of course, down with the copay. Uh, from Jacobin. Gotta say, uh, not the funniest thing you've written, but... 
I did. Not enough punches. Well, there was an old country buffet reference, which I which was fire. I will say. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you could uh, sort of explain what uh, this this latest bill that Senator Bernie Sanders introduced uh, to the Senate was has a lot of co-sponsors now. Initially, it included co-payments, but that was struck from the bill. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of not having co-pays in the insurance system? Yeah, so uh, co-pays are basically um, charges for um, different things, you know, for seeing a doctor, for getting drugs, or, um, you know, sometimes other points of contact with the medical system. Uh, And usually they're fairly low. Uh, and the justification from people who like copays is that uh, having a copay basically makes people, um, you know, think twice before going to the doctor for a stubbed toe. That without copays, you just have this complete deluge of people who would go to the doctor for literally every single thing. And so a small copay is a way to uh, control overuse. Um and I mean, that, that argument is very silly because, first of all, if that were true, we would expect super rich people to go to the doctor all the time, right? And they don't. Uh, so I think that, you know, people for whom money is no object, if they're not doing that thing, that ought to cast some serious shade on the argument in the first place. Uh, but we also know that, you know, statistically, it does make people use care less, but that this disproportionately affects poor people. Uh, and that their health suffers as a result. And from my understanding about single payer is that a lot of the admin costs will be drastically reduced or removed, and also uh, marketing costs don't factor in. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, marketing, admin, um, you know, profit margins, that those things are gone and you know I mean just the the price of the insurance system uh, but then what single payer really does is you know if there's only one payer uh, then providers are pretty much beholden to it that suddenly you know providers don't just name any price to a multitude of small players who are then pretty much forced to adhere to it uh, when there's only one payer then you basically have a government entity setting the price for healthcare, and so it doesn't rise as insanely quickly as it does now. And you don't get doctors itemizing bajillions and bajillions of dollars for you know every tiny aspect of a given procedure. Well, it's, it's interesting because the term cost sharing kind of sounds a little socialisty, uh, but as you point out, that's you know a, a part of the that's a fundamental issue with the insurance industry that we have, or just the way we deliver. Healthcare to people. Um, it's but, the only uh, thing keeping us from the red menace. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, it is a pretty bullshit way to think about it. You know, cost sharing. The idea that, you know, these poor insurance companies need us to help out a little bit uh, and be good sports about it. Like, fuck off. You know, I mean, it, it is, I think you're right that it's, you know, a pretty condescending yeah, phrase. But a lot of the logic, though, it seems like has, has still been. Uh, internalized by state institutions, like you point out, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, they do um, take care of a lot of people who, who the private market just can't cover, um, but they still retain uh, co-payments, things like, things like that. Um, it, 
why has that not why was that not uh, more um, contentious in the uh, the sixties when we introduced like Medicare and Medicaid? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know it's one of those things where in the U.S. context, a lot of people's model for uh, health insurance and what that was was the private system. So I think that you know why why they had them and maybe why. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill had them at first, too, was, A, people are used to them. So it doesn't, I think, immediately register as this perverse, shitty thing that doesn't belong in the healthcare system. Uh, and it also does um, control costs in healthcare use. Uh, I don't think that people are critical enough about why that is. Um, I think that they are willing to go along with the more ridiculous argument as to why, uh, which I was trying to push back against in my piece. Um, yeah, actually, Medicaid did not initially have cost sharing. Medicaid being uh, the Great Society program specifically for uh, the poor and disabled, um, it was introduced later. And I wrote in the piece that, you know, there are a few instances in which we actually see that it backfires. Uh, in California, as a ballot budgeting me uh, budget balancing measure, uh, in the mid-70s, they introduced co-payments, and then the savings from less healthcare use uh, through co-payments was actually offset by, you know, people putting off treatment and then having to be hospitalized because of it, and that ended up costing more. Right. Well, something what we're seeing now, um, of course, the context of the article comes with uh, Senator Sanders introducing this bill, which um, it's getting a lot of co-sponsors who you would not think a couple of years ago, people like Kamala Harris, Al Franken, Cory Booker signing on to this thing. This is um, Bernie Sanders silencing women bill? <laughs> no, this is... Uh, his other bill. Yeah, this is his... his um, we will have an amendment. <laughs> and, and He's provide, all about amendments. Provide co-pays for ponies. But, uh, <laughs> so th what are the odds, though, that, and what are some of the ways that uh, this oh, single-payer is... <laughs> at risk if the Democrats get in power again, um, say something gets passed, are there ways that they're kind of kind of undercut it and make it uh, sort of like a symbolic thing that doesn't actually get to the heart of this issue, which is cost sharing? Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's hard for me to predict. Uh, I think that, you know, for me to know the answer to that question, I'd have to know a lot about what happens between now and then. Um, I think that there is some, you know, I think that people on the left are uh, really energized by this surge of interest in single payer. And, you know, I've heard, you know, seeing these, I mean, seeing Cory Booker write a healthcare tweet that I, a couple weeks ago, whenever it was, that I thought was really great about a right to healthcare. I was, you know, surprised, like, how can I, like, fully agree with a Cory Booker tweet? This is crazy. There are no, you know, like, Dianne Feinstein will say things like access to insurance or access to healthcare, which is totally different than saying healthcare is a fundamental right. Uh, and so, you know, I really welcome the shift in dialogue on that. And if Democrats are going to embrace that, I'm not going to you know, so like, I'll, I'll welcome that. Um, and I think that most people on the left feel that way. Um, there's not really a way to test that right now, because it is obviously at this point, such a 
strictly symbolic bill. Um, I do think that they're, you know, it'll be it'll be hard for them to unendorse this. Let's put it that way. If we, you know, if the Democrats do have a majority in the next few years, I think that it would be politically difficult for them to back away from it. Uh, in terms of, you know, how they'd like to water it down. I mean, I do think that cost sharing will be part of that debate. Uh, I think that, you know, when the CBO gets to this thing or when people start talking about it, I do think that someone's going to run the numbers and say, look, if we have high deductibles or if we have co-payments, look at how much the price goes down. And like, that'll be true, uh, but it'll be true for the wrong reasons. And so, you know, that's something that I hope that people are willing to talk about when it comes up. Are you at all concerned, though, about, I, I've heard some people talk about the state-based approach where we kind of go state by state. I know in California, that's a big issue right now, a, a statewide single-payer system. Is that uh, something you see the insurance industry being able to really kind of co-opt and install um, as opposed to a sort of a national effort? Well, I, I mean, I think that, and I've written about this too in Pacific Standard, actually. Uh, I think that the issue, obviously the insurance industry will always be a huge impediment to uh, single payer um, because it's legislation that strives to obliterate them, um, which I think will just be a delight. Grinding health insurance companies into dust is, you know, one of the most underrated aspects of this fight. Um, but you know, they're not really the big impediment when it comes to state single payer. Uh, the big impediment is that there are a ton of regulations and laws governing this stuff that, uh, exist at the federal level. Things like, you know, the California bill SB 562, which is actually shelved right now. It's kind of in limbo, uh, on a two year cycle in the state assembly, but, uh, basically their, uh, financial study showed that. Um, you know, 70% of the cost of this thing is money that we already get from the federal government. And so we'd only have to make up 30%, which uh, on its face is true, but there's also no legal mechanism by which to, you know, however much of that money is uh, Medicare, for example, Medicare paid to uh, Californians. There's no part of Medicare that's like, how do states reallocate Medicare money to uh, a new single payer system? Like that doesn't exist. Um, you know, I guess that the state of California would have to sue the attorney general for it. I don't, I mean, I don't even know the specifics of how that would work. Uh, there is part of the um, Affordable Care Act, you know, these state innovation waivers that I'm sure you guys have heard about that there's at least a pathway for, you know, here's how states could uh, apply for a waiver to get that money reallocated into, you know, some state design thing. Um, more of those have been for states to, you know, privatize stuff. Uh, I was just reading an article today about, you know, how bad privatized Medicaid has been in Iowa. Um, but so, you know, getting it into a single payer pool would still depend on a uh, you know, friendly executive. And, you know, California, I don't think would have too much success right now, even if it did pass the bill, getting the Trump administration to approve its 1332 waiver to create a single payer system in place of, you know, the California ACA exchange.
I wanted to ask a question, too, about the movement for this, and I guess the broader socialist movement uh, in the country right now. You're a member of DSA, right? Um, uh-huh. Well, Good. We got yeah. it. <laughs> may uh-huh. or may not be the official DSA podcast. But, I've uh, said it enough times. It makes us it. <laughs> um, but something I am kind of concerned with, and I think Medicare for All, of course, is a huge issue, very important one, and I hope we get a system like that. But it does seem like there's a lot of energy and effort right now focused on that that could be happening at the expense of other issues. Uh, and I was wondering if you thought there was a need to connect it to other things like the carceral state, where a lot of the money potentially could come from to fund a system like this, and just getting people to think about uh, their daily lives as, as political. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, one thing I love about DSA is that there's room to work on a lot of issues and there's a coherent analysis uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, provides a lot of momentum for them. Uh, I think one problem with liberalism, one problem with, uh, you know, Hillary's campaign is you know, I think a lot of Democrats do talk about wanting, um, you know, I, they usually say universal coverage, not universal health care. Uh, but that's incompatible with a neoliberal political system. Um, they can't exist at the same time. Um, you know, Medicare for all, uh, solidaristic programs that socialize basic needs, those are compatible with you know, a broader socialist context. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I'm not necessarily concerned about it. I also think that healthcare is a great issue insofar as I think it's uh, more than most issues, a great introduction uh, to these, you know, in terms of you said talking about people's lives uh, in a political way. I think that healthcare more than, you know, most other issues, more than you know, housing, for example, uh, or education. I mean, I think that healthcare uh, is an issue that, I mean, it's so bad and so crazy in the United States that most people have intimate contact with someone who's been completely wrecked by the healthcare system in a way that, you know, I think a lot of people in the country, like however terrible our housing situation is, uh, the majority of people don't see themselves in uh, danger of becoming homeless. Uh, they don't have homeless friends. You know, I mean, it's it's a little bit different than, you know, I think that practically everybody has, uh, you know, knows someone in their life that's had a horrible uh, experience with the healthcare system. They know someone who's, you know, lost all of their money to a cancer diagnosis, they know someone who's gone bankrupt, they've known someone who's, you know, foregone treatment, or they've, you know, even just experienced the barrage of bills and the indignity of fighting for months with an insurance company. Uh, So I think that it feels tangible and relevant. And I also just think that the, for, for someone that doesn't know anything about socialism or politics, I think that a lot of the lessons of capitalism or the dogma of capitalism uh, has really entrenched itself in ways that they're not aware of. Like, I think most people, you know, even if they would consider themselves liberal, probably think things like, well, if you, you know, if you don't have money, work for it and get a job, blah, blah, like, you know, that that's how to 
get most of your basic needs and that's how to, you know, work hard and move up. Like, I, I think that those things uh, make intuitive sense to people. But I also think that they see something like healthcare, like, you know, that healthcare they see as being understandably that, you know, anyone can end up with any diagnosis. They've all had their lives shattered or known someone whose lives were shattered because of an unexpected diagnosis. And so, you know, the way that harm is uh, distributed in health compared to other things, I think feels to them like less just and more random. Uh, and so, you know, obviously as a socialist, I want them to carry that analysis through that, you know, if commodified healthcare is bad, then so is commodified housing, then so is commodified elder care. So our commodified retirement accounts, so our, you know, commodified childcare programs. Uh, I want people to understand all of those things, but I do think that for someone who isn't into this stuff at all, I think that healthcare is like maybe the best first step. Commodified comedy also bad. Yeah. That's, we're buying that 100%. No, socialism is a real uh, emblem for justice, which is why the Wonder Woman movie was socialist, and we're about to win over all of the comic book fans. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, this has been very informative, at least for me, uh, someone who is confused every time he is in a hospital. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was amazing. Uh, thank you, guys. This was great. Do you, do you have anything you want to plug on your way out? Um, yeah, so two things. Um, one, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Natalie Shirley. Uh, I like to once in a while make fun of Josh Barrow, as you mentioned before. No, a friend. Uh, Trigger <laughs> warning. <laughs> I, guess I, tweet about, I, I tweet about healthcare a lot. Uh, I tweet about, you know, Broadway musicals sometimes. No one seems to like that. I will not stop. Um, that's mostly what I use the old account for. Uh, but also, if you are in or near Los Angeles, um, on November 11th and 12th, we are having a socialist day school in the neighborhood of Westlake at the First Unitarian Church. And we are hoping to turn out a few hundred people for panels and workshops about the history of socialism in the United States to try to psych people up about how uh, many of the great things in your history books were uh, actually led by socialists. Um, and so we're really excited about that. So if any of your listeners are in or around LA, they should come to our day school. It's going to be like only five or $10, but no one will be turned down for that. So of it's funds. a day school, but it's also a pep rally where you can get up. Yeah. I mean, I think that learning is the best way to drum up pep, right? It certainly is. And my football <laughs> coach should not see it that way. Uh, that's a joke and not a true story. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> what so are we watching? Wrapping up. Uh, universe, uh, single pair, good. Harvey Weinstein, bad? We decided bad. Okay, we okay. Bad. just checking. Yeah, bad. yeah, him and the... Uh, I need uh, a blue shield from that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're against it. Um, uh, if you're listening, please come to our stand-up comedy show this Friday, the... Thirteenth, ooh, spooky paid protest. We have an amazing lineup and a special guest who we cannot name, but you will very much like to see. Yes, uh, that's at seven at Star Bar in Brooklyn. Um, and then yeah. just follow us on Twitter. Yeah, I'm Ragamera, ACLU official. See you Friday. Tanner's Lee at New Poor Life. Uh, love to see you Friday, thirteenth. Yep, yep. I'm Alex Ooh. Patak. I'm at Patak Jokes. Watch my dang web series. I worked so long on it. Uh, and that's, that's another week. Rog of loves it. Um, 
Thanks again to Natalie, and we'll see you in the Vanguard. <laughs>